Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 19. We are in the middle of this series on the family from the book of Colossians. And the title of this morning's message is The Husband's Sobering Responsibility. The Husband's Sobering Responsibility. And the Word of God says this, Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Marriage is described in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7 as a grace of life. A grace of life. And what is grace? Well, grace is, a, is a, a blessing that we do not deserve, that none of us can earn or merit. And marriage is described as, as a blessing that we don't deserve. None of us husbands deserve. If you are married this morning, if you are desiring to be married, you don't deserve a lady to marry. It is a gift of God to be enjoyed. From the very beginning, God himself said, it is not good or beneficial for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable. And so our good and gracious God instituted the first marriage covenant. But along with the first marriage, God gave roles or responsibilities to each member of the marriage that must be obeyed and lived out if the marriage is to experience blessing, joy, and peace. To wives, we've seen that God gave the responsibility to to follow their husbands, to submit to their husbands, to joyfully, willingly, voluntarily arrange themselves under their husbands for the glory of God. To husbands, God gave the responsibility to lead their wives. The New Testament reiterates and highlights this call for husbands to, to lead through the metaphor that we call headship. Male headship. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 23 says this, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself, Christ, being the Savior of the body. And we've seen this in Colossians, haven't we? That the term head carries the idea of authority, which is not a very popular word in our culture in light of the abuses of authority in all kinds of different contexts. Nevertheless, authority is a, is a God-given thing for the benefit or the recipients. As Christ has authority then, as head Over his church, so the husband has authority to lead his wife for her benefit. For her benefit. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 3 says this, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. That verse highlights the fact that God has established order. And there is equality in this order. As the Father is the head of Christ, and yet they are equal, so husbands are the head of their wives, even though they are equal. There is headship there. And so men were called, as the head of their homes, to lead, according to these passages. I wonder how often we think about that, brothers, husbands. Of the sobering responsibility, the privilege that you and I have of leading our wives and families. 
And by extension, I would say, even leading in the church. How often do we think about the serious responsibility that that is? How many of us this morning understand the weight and the high calling of God upon our lives as husbands to lead, to lead? One of the marks of an increasingly feminized culture is that less and less men are leading. If that is true in the secular realm, you would think that it would be different in the church. It isn't. Less and less men are leading in the church as well. There's a big difference with what the Bible says and what our culture or how our culture defines masculinity or what a man being a man means. Two very different definitions. In fact, I did some research for you with some common notions from our culture about what it means to be a man. What does a real man consist of? And here are some of the things that I found. A real man is concerned about his external appearance. He needs to be concerned about being handsome. He needs to be concerned about having a good physique. He needs to be looking good if he's going to get the right job, get the right girl. So a real man is concerned about the way that he looks. A real man is concerned about success in the workplace so that he can have enough cash and he can make good money because if you make good money, you can get a good girl. A real man has style and he keeps up with the latest fashion trends. He wants to keep up and look good. And in fact, he wants to be above the latest fashion trends. A real man, you ladies are going to like this one, needs to be a good cook. Some of you ladies say, amen to that. <laughs> needs to be a good cook. A, re- a good cook in uh, a man is, is, a tra- is an attractive man. A real man is independent. Independent. He can figure things out on his own. In fact, listen to this. A real man needs no one. A real man is anonymous. He knows how to rule himself or guide himself. He doesn't need other people around him. A real man makes things. He knows how to build a rock wall. He knows how to build a table. He knows how to build a fire pit. I wish I knew how to build a fire pit. That would rock. A real man can defend his rights. In fact, he's a very good fighter. One guy said this. A real man fantasizes that Kung Fu lives deep inside of him somewhere. And he's not afraid to unleash a beatdown on anyone who messes with him. A real man is witty, intelligent, because he needs to be able to win an argument. He needs to be good at argumentation to get the upper hand in the job, in the home, with other people. He needs to be able to win an argument. Those, beloved are popular notions, and many others, of what it means to be a man according to our culture. But the Bible paints a very different picture of what it means to be masculine, right? Of what it means to be a man. Listen to 1 Corinthians 16, 13. It says this, Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all you do be done in love. That word there, be strong, is the word courageous. 
To be a man, uh, biblical masculinity is about being courageous. Real men are courageous. And if courage means anything, it means understanding who God is and who God has called you to be. And from this understanding, to act like a man means to follow the responsibilities that God has given you to obey Him according to His Word. So men are courageous because our courage is rooted in our confidence in God and in His calling upon us and the responsibilities He's called us to fulfill. According to the Bible, the courage to lead is at the heart of masculinity. And what being a man means. And what we learn here in Colossians 3.19 is that to be a man does not consist of the, the amount of hair on your body, the amount of muscles that you have, how witty you are, how intelligent you are, even how successful you are in your workplace and how much money you make. Biblical masculinity, listen to me, brothers, is functional. Biblical masculinity is functional, meaning that it is shown, biblical masculinity is shown in the faithful fulfilling of your God-given functions or responsibilities. It is fulfilling your biblical role, responsibility as leader in your marriage, in your family, in the church, in the workplace, in your neighborhood that makes you a man. It is functional. To be a man means to be able to own responsibilities and own your God-given role as a Christian man, as a godly man. There are many 30, 40, 50, 60-year-old men who are still babies or children in men's bodies. Look around. Why? Because they don't fulfill their God-given responsibilities. They are immature. They are not spiritually mature. They are not socially mature. Their immaturity is shown in the fact that they spend time consumed with themselves. Consumed with themselves. Consumed with video games. More and more men above the age of 30 and 40 are spending more and more hours, even professing believers, on video games. Hours and hours instead of engaging their families, beginning with their wives. Hobbies, television, wanting to be fashionable, being about image, having the nice cars, having the electronic toys, adventures, women. If they are successful in their jobs, they are successful in their jobs for themselves, for their own selfish pleasure. It is not about who they are serving. It is not about using the God, their God-given authority for the benefit of their families, to lead their families It's for selfish pleasure. There are men like that all over our society, beloved. Well, the Word of God counters this mindset, doesn't it? And Paul would say in Colossians 3.19 that the man of God who is a husband, as head of the home, is to lead his family for their benefit, beginning with his wife. But he is not to lead as a dictator on the one extreme. Or on the other, sinful extreme as a passive spectator, lethargic, passive, complacent, allowing his wife to take the lead? How is the godly husband, how is a real godly man to be leading in the home? What does his leadership look like? 
And what we see here in verse 19 is that, is that the leadership of the godly husband is marked by two overarching characteristics. We're going to focus on the first of these characteristics this morning and the second one next week. But the leadership of the godly husband is, first of all, not selfish, but loving leadership. It is not selfish, but loving leadership. Paul says in verse 19, husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. If there is anything true about the godly husband is that he's more concerned with loving his wife than loving himself. The world will tell us that our problem as men and as husbands is that we don't love ourselves enough. Love yourself more. Pamper yourself more. Spend more time with yourself. Spend more time on your physique. Spend more time in enjoying the money that you make. Because after all, you're the one that wins the, brings home the bacon. You're entitled to that money. Love yourself, says our culture. Brothers, the problem with us men is not that we don't love ourselves enough. Our problem is that we love ourselves too much. Too much. And that shows itself in the fact that we're self-consumed with our expectations and our wives not meeting our expectations and our families not meeting our expectations. With our comforts, our goals, our personal success, our priorities. And all of our time and resources goes to the big idol of me. Me, me, me. Paul knows that men love themselves too much. So he does not begin with husbands, lead your wives by exercising authority over them or love yourselves more because this is going to help you become a, a better lover of your wife. He says in this positive instruction in verse 19, husbands, love your wives, love them. That lady, that precious woman that God in his goodness has put in your life, who is one flesh with you, who is yours as a stewardship in this earthly life, yours by the goodness of Almighty God in this one flesh covenant union of marriage, love her. Love her. Now you need to know that that was countercultural in Paul's day. Paul is not concerned here about establishing the authority of men. That was something that men understood already, and they used their authority like a rod of iron. In fact, you see that the, that the male really occupies all three roles in, this, in verses 18 all the way to chapter 4, verse 1. You see husbands in verse 19. You see fathers in verse 21. You see masters in chapter 4, verse 1. All of those roles within a typical household at that day, in that, on that day were occupied by the male. Males understood that they had authority as the head of the household. And they used that authority and they abused that authority. Women were not to question men's authority. Wives were not valued at all. I told you this. They were devalued. They were considered women and wives in particular as just a tad bit above household slaves. Or in some cases just a, a little bit above animals. Women were not treasured or respected. One guy who wrote during that period of time, wrote this, Since women are married for the sake of bearing children and heirs, 
and not for pleasure and enjoyment, it is totally absurd to inquire about the quality of rank of the family line or about the abundance of their wealth, but not to inquire about their ability to conceive children. In other words, all that matters is that the woman can have some babies. And if she can help you out with that, then you should marry her, regardless of her character or whatever else, as long as she can give you some kids. There was also little tolerance for any wife who got out of line. Another historian on that day wrote, wrote that a silent wife was a gift from the Lord. And he advised this, if she does not go as you direct her, immediately separate her from yourself, i.e. divorce her. Husbands could divorce their wives for such things as not cooking the meal correctly or burning the meal, for looking at them in a a condescending manner, talking back to them, being disrespectful to them, or even if the husband suspected infidelity in any way, shape, or form. If he was suspicious of her being unfaithful, he could divorce her and they didn't have to confirm anything. And it is in this context, beloved, that Paul commands Christian husbands, love your wives, because that was exactly what they needed to hear. And what husbands have, past, present, and future, always struggled with is at the core of our weakness as men. We don't love our wives enough. Amen? We don't. He says, continually love them. Present tense command. It is not optional. Husbands, it is not a matter of choice. You are not the ruler of your life. God is. It does not depend upon whether you feel like it. It does not depend on whether she is worthy of it. You are to love your wife continually. It is our sobering responsibility to be characterized By being lovers of our wives. The word here for love is a beautiful word, agape. You know the word. It signifies sacrificial, self-giving love. It doesn't have to do primarily with emotional or romantic love, though certainly romance should be cultivated in any healthy marriage. But this is a a love that is a love of commitment, a love that is that is willing and voluntary. It is a love of, of action. Action. You know what? It's the love that God has shown toward us, right? He's shown us this love. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 12, look there. He says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, loved ones, Paul calls these believers loved ones. Same word. Agape. God has loved you this way. And then he says in verse 14, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. In other words, because God has loved us, we are to love one another. Because God loves us, husband, you must love your wife as he has loved you. And from that endless infinite reservoir of love that God has poured within your heart. You ought to be loving your wife as well because He's loved you much, hasn't He? Now Colossians doesn't expand upon this this love, um, but Ephesians does. And so I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Where this love is expanded upon. I don't know. As we come into this passage, what your definition of love is, 
I don't know what you import from the world or your past or your upbringing or the way that you were raised as far as your definition of love. I don't know what excuses you are making currently to justify your lack of love for your wife. I don't know how well you think you are doing in loving your spouse. But I want you to know that what we see here in Ephesians 5 verses 25 and following is the ultimate example of love. And it is a standard of Christ as to how he loves his church. He is the standard. Christ is the ultimate leader, is he not? The ultimate leader. So how did he love his church? And Paul's point here is, the way that he loved his church is the way that you husbands are to love your wives. The marriage, the human marriage, is to picture the eternal love that Christ has for his people, the church. So how did he love his church? Because the more we understand Christ's love for the church, beloved brothers, the more we are equipped to love our spouses and not to make excuses for not loving our spouses. I want you to notice, first of all, that husbands are to love their wives in a Christ-like kind of love. A Christ-like love. He says in verse 25, husbands, love your wives. And here's the expansion. Just as Christ loved the church. Mm-mm-mm. I love this. For those of us, especially, who did not have much of an example of human fathers, who modeled for us what it meant to love a wife biblically, to love her as Jesus loves his church, Christ is the standard. Christ is your example. For some of us who make excuses for not loving our wives, Christ is your example. Christ is the standard. For some of us who who think we've arrived somehow, and we think that we don't have any area to grow in loving our wives, let me ask you this. Are you loving your wife as perfectly as Christ loves his church? Yes or no? No. None of us are. Right? Amen? Any husband in here perfectly loving your wife as Christ perfectly loves his church? No. None of us have arrived. Here's the ultimate example here. What I want you to note here is that Christ's love was a love that took the initiative, right? Jesus initiated this love. We did not seek God, beloved. None of us did. None of us did. We did not invite Jesus into our hearts apart from the, from the working of God in our hearts to bring about the new birth. None of us seek after God. Apart from Christ having sought us and shown us love, we would not be here, beloved. We did not choose him, but he chose us. That's what Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I have chosen you that you would bear much fruit. That was the case for the disciples then. That's the case for any follower of Jesus. Jesus sought us out first. We were not lovable. He's the ultimate pursuer. He's the relentless lover of our souls. He took the initiative. And it is in that way that husbands are to take the initiative to love their wives. You know, I've heard husbands say things along the lines of, in the middle of conflict with their wives, well, if she would just make the first move. Well, if she would initiate asking for my forgiveness. If she would make the first move to reconcile this situation. I wonder if 
we we rewind some of those men's past and and, and their pursuit of their wives when they were after her before marriage, if they were waiting for her to make the first move, right? Uh Uh-uh, I made the first move. I was after Andrea like crazy, right? But now things change in marriage, right? In the middle of hardships, we expect as husbands, the wives to make the initiative. No, you're the leader. You're the husband. Lead. Lead in the hard times and confront difficult situations because God has called you to lead. That is Christ-like love that takes the initiative, brothers. In the hardest of times, you tackle things head on, not run away from them and excuse things and blame them on your wife. Amen? Come on now. We husbands are the leaders. And as Christ sought us out and pursues us, Still, in our Christianity, and our journey with Him, we ought to be pursuing our wives, beloved brothers. So husbands are to love as Christ loved the church. But what else can we learn about Christ's love? It is that it's a sacrificial love, isn't it? Look at verse 25. What is the way of His love? It says, and He gave Himself up for her. Christ gave Himself for His, for his, his bride, the church. In what way did Christ manifest His love for His people? He laid down His life for us. Not because we were worthy. Not because we were lovely. Not because we deserved His love. He loved us when unworthy, when filthy, when dirty, when rebellious. And we were unwilling to follow Him. And Jesus sought us out, laid His life down for us, beloved. It was at our worst That Jesus, our Savior, laid down His life for us. And if Christ's love is of such a nature that He's self-sacrificial, then how much more should we as husbands sacrifice for our wives? And you may not like this. That's okay. I've talked to husbands who have a very difficult time with sacrificial type language. Really? Is that what I'm called to? I thought that the goal of marriage was my happiness. I said, "Uh uh-uh. The goal of marriage is that you exalt Christ. And that you picture Christ and His church. And the second goal of marriage is that you make your wife happy and love her. The call to follow Christ. Listen, husbands. The call to follow Christ is a call to self-death. Think about it. At the most basic level of your Christianity. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow after me. Right? If you're not willing to do that, then you're not a follower of Christ. If this is not your understanding of salvation, then you know what? You're following the wrong Jesus. Wrong Jesus. I don't know what Jesus you're following. The life of following after Christ is is a life of, of passionate pursuit of Jesus Christ and dying to yourself so that you make much of him, not much of yourself anymore. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. What was Paul saying? It is not about me anymore. Since my collision with Jesus, it's all about Him, His priorities, His agenda, His kingdom purposes, not my own. Christ lives through me now. It's all about Him. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, speaks about the fact that believers are are to be living sacrifices. 
as an act of worship to Almighty God. We are a living sacrifice. He said, what does this all have to do with loving my wife? Everything, brothers. Everything. Dying to yourself is essential in marriage, isn't it? Essential for us as husbands. We lead the charge as far as self-death goes. Unless you adopt a self-death mentality, you will continue to have issues with loving your wife. You will continue to be self-serving, self-justifying, self-centered. But when you learn to die for yourself, that's got implications for big things in life and your relationship with your wife or the little mundane things every single day. When you and I die to ourselves as husbands, then in the midst of those moments of conflicts and disagreements, we will learn as husbands to take the initiative and defer to our wives, thus dying to ourselves. When there is a lack of forgiveness on the part of your wife toward you, you take the initiative, die to yourself, and seek her forgiveness and try to understand things from her perspective. That is dying to yourself. When she's overwhelmed in a particular day, and there needs to be cleaning of the kitchen or dishes. Dying to yourself means that you set aside your own, your, your own comfort after a hard day of work and you wash the dishes. That is dying to yourself right there. Dying to yourself is essential in marriage, isn't it? For big things and little things. But you know what it requires? It requires humility, doesn't it? The type of humility that we see in, in Philippians chapter 2. Where it says that Jesus showed, when he came to earth, he humbled himself, suffered and died on the cross. The humility of Christ is our pattern, brothers. Our pattern. We sacrifice from a heart of humility. That considers our wives as more important than ourselves. That is willing to meet her needs. And this is very, very difficult, I'll tell you. Especially for some of us who didn't grow up with good father figures. Men who modeled biblical masculinity for us and what it meant to be a godly husband. I remember growing up and trying to serve in a house with many different women. And my father figure telling me, hey, don't wash those dishes. That's reserved for the women. That's women's work. Don't change those diapers of your nieces because that is a woman's job. Don't clean the kitchen because that is a woman's role. That is what women ought to do. I'll tell you what. That was a huge, huge thing for me to overcome when I came to know Christ. And by the grace of God, God has allowed me to overcome that. If you're going to self-sacrifice, you must humble yourself, right? Humble service. Real men, beloved brothers, change diapers. Real men wash dishes because they're driven by an internal humility following after the example of Jesus Christ. I love that, that scene in The Last Samurai. Great movie, by the way. That scene where, she, where, the, where the, um, the, the Japanese woman that he loves, that he falls in love with, is carrying a big uh, pail of water. She could barely pick it up. And Tom Cruise walks over, being an American, he walks over and he picks it up for her and she's shocked. And she says, Japanese men don't do that. And do you remember what he said to her? He says, I am not Japanese. Right? You know what? It's the same thing for us as believing men, right? As Christian men. The world says it's, it's shame and it's, 
It's dumb. And it is a questioning of your masculinity to serve and to self-sacrifice for your wife. Jesus says, you must sacrifice and lay down your life for her and serve her. That's what he says. Countering the world around us. Real men take time to listen to their wives. Real men take time to help them around the house. Real men take time to to put themselves in the, the shoes of their wives to understand where they're coming from and how they think about things. Real men do that. That is biblical masculinity, brothers. That is biblical masculinity. Not weakness. Real men love sacrificially. Real men engage their children, small and older. Even when it is difficult, real men do those kinds of things. I want you to notice that this is also an active love, an active love. What did Christ do? He laid down his life for us, didn't he? He gave himself. It implies an action that our Savior did. That beautiful passage, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, expounding upon the beauty of love, that talks about love being patient and kind and not, and not jealous and not arrogant and not boastful. It doesn't seek its own and so forth and so forth. All of those characteristics of love in 1 Corinthians 13 are what? Actions. Actions. Not, just, not emotions. They're actions. Love is not stagnant. Love is not passive. Love is not inactive. It does not terminate. It does. It acts. 1 John 3.18 says, My little children, let us not love in word or tongue, but in deed and truth. Let your actions follow through with what you profess as far as your love for your spouse, right? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He, what? Gave. God loved, therefore He gave. That whoever believes in his son should not perish, but have everlasting life. God loved, therefore he gave with a love that is active, right? Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates, demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God shows us his love. God's love is an active love. Listen, husbands, don't say you love your wife and just be consumed with yourself. Living for yourself. Self-preoccupied with your agenda, your priorities, your concerns, your career, your toys, your this, your that. If that is all what you're about, then you're not living out Christ-like kind of love that is active toward your spouse, toward your wife. A husband's loving leadership is to be self-sacrificial and it is active I want you to notice that it's also a beneficial love in verse 26. Why did Christ die for his bride, the church? It was for the glory of his father and for the benefit of those who believe in him, right? Look at verse 26. So that he, Christ, might sanctify her, meaning his church, set her apart from sin unto himself is the idea there having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that's describing the new birth there, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Oh, beloved, Jesus had kind intentions for you and I who have embraced him as Lord and Savior of our lives. He died for our benefit. Think about that. Someone has said true love. 
is always most concerned with the purity of its object. In other words, when you truly love someone, your utmost concern will be that person's holiness and purity. And in the case of Christ for His church, His ultimate desire for her when He laid down His life for her was that His church, His people, would be holy, pure, and blameless. He died for the glory of His Father, and He died for the benefit of those who embrace Him. See that? Implication? That like Christ loved His church in that manner, husbands should be most concerned with what is beneficial for their wives. For the spiritual growth in Christ-likeness of their wives. Oh, think about this, husbands. What is your greatest preoccupation in your thinking toward your wife when you're with her or away from her? She's not treating me well. She's not respecting me. She's not fulfilling me. She's not listening to me. She's not obeying me. She's not honoring me. What is the common denominator in all of those statements? Me, 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 me. Where is the glory of Christ in that? And where is the benefit of your wife in that? It is all about us, isn't it? Not about the glory of Christ many times. That, that, that Christ would be formed in her. What about her holiness and her purity and her growth and her sanctification? Brothers, husbands, if we were more concerned about our wife's spiritual growth, then perhaps we might find the grace to be able to persevere and endure through the hard times. But that's not our utmost concern. I want to ask you today, are you most concerned about your wife's spiritual growth and health, health than anything else? Is it important to you? Let's put them, some hands and feet to this. When was the last time you asked your wife how she was doing spiritually? When was the last time you asked her what are her biggest hurts in life right now? When was the last time you asked her what are her biggest needs? Maybe you can meet one of those needs. When was the last time you asked her how you might pray for her specifically and deliberately? How much of a stumbling block are you to her? Let me ask you that. How much do you know how to get under her skin and you use those opportunities to cause her to stumble because you know how to make her angry in the midst of conflict? If that is you as a pattern, then you're not concerned about what is most beneficial for her, that she would be like Jesus. It's all about you. When was the last time you led your wife or family into prayer and the reading of the word? Well, pastor, as long as she leads us, then I think we're all right. No, you're the man, aren't you? You're the man, you're the husband, you're the leader, lead. You lead. There may be times when she takes, to, if she's able to spiritually lead the family in your absence, but when you are there, you lead in gentleness and in love spiritually. You lead. That's your role. That's your responsibility. That's not her primary role. Don't blame her for the spiritual lethargy in your home. Blame yourself. Look in the mirror first. Right, brothers? A godly wife longs for this, doesn't she? The godly wife longs for a husband who will lead. She aches for this. She hurts for this. She prays for this. 
She responds to loving leadership that acts for her and the family's benefit. That is what a godly wife wants. And she will respond to that type of leadership. Amen, ladies? She will respond to that. Listen to me, brothers. Godly women want men to lead. But when men don't lead, they will take the lead and take the reins. If you don't, you're not leading as you should. That goes for the home. That goes for the church. One of the eye-openers in my travels to Southeast Asia and Latin America over the years was the, the, uh, the number of women pastor, elder, overseers that are in these churches. And what I was told ahead of time before these trips is, you know what, you're going to find this with some of these women. They are rebellious. They are rebellious. Well, you know what I found? The more I encountered these women, the more that it was apparent that, yeah, there were some who were rebellious, few, who understood what the Bible said, and they rebelled against it. There were others who were just flat out untaught, and they didn't understand what the Bible said about elder over, overseer pastor being a role for qualified men in the church. They didn't understand. So we taught them. And they would step off of leading in those roles. And they would, uh, they would encourage men to be stepping up and leading. But the biggest thing that I found was just that. The reason why many of these women were taking those pastoral roles that they should not take biblically speaking is because men were spiritual wimps who were not leading in the church. They were not leading. And so they would take the reins. But as soon as a man or men started to step up in some of these churches, oh, wow, what a transformation of these godly women who were now able to, to focus on ministering to other women in the church and who were more than happy to give that position to a qualified man in the church who would lead and preach and shepherd. They were waiting for that, beloved. That's what godly women do. The church... Listen to me, the church does not need women to stop ministering at a high level. The church needs for men to step up, to step up and to lead in their homes, in the church, by way of service. That is the greatest need in the church. This is also a caring love. Verse 28, look at this. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. I love this. Christ loves and cares for his own body, the church. He nourishes and cherishes her. Christ is the comforter, right? By his spirit, Christ convicts, Christ intercedes, Christ meets the needs of his church, spiritually and physically. Is Christ not good to you, beloved, today? He's so good, isn't he? He nourishes and cherishes us. He takes care of us. He's our high priest before the Father, interceding for our sins daily at moment by moment he loves and he cares for us so husbands should do the same why because he shares a one flesh union with his wife we are called beloved brothers to nourish and cherish our wives as well to care for their spiritual and their physical needs so if they are cold or you're cold maybe they're cold if you're hungry, maybe they're hungry. If you need encouragement spiritually, what makes you think that she doesn't? If you are hurting and you're lonely and there's depression in your life, what makes you think that she doesn't have some of those same needs as well? 
Are we nourishing and cherishing our wives with a caring kind of love? See, our God-given leadership was not so that we dominate or lord it over our wives, so that, but so that we could care for their needs and to serve them, right? Listen, as much as I, I profoundly and strongly disagree with the feminist movement of our day, you and I need to recognize that there is a small segment of the movement over the decades that is responding or reacting to the abuse of men and their authority. Reacting to this. I'm not justifying the wrong thinking of the feminist movement, even that segment. But what I am saying is this, that many women in the feminist movement have yet to see Christ-exalting men who care as opposed to dominate. And who lord it over women and treat them as unequals. It is a caring love, a caring love that Christ loves his church with and that husbands are to emulate. It's a committed love. Look at verse 31. He quotes Genesis 2.24 regarding the the permanence of, of love. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. He highlights the permanence of marriage. That marriage is a, that, that the love that a husband is to have for his wife is to be a committed love as well. As Christ is committed to his church, is devoted to his church, so husbands are to be committed to their wives. What does 1 Corinthians 13, 8 say? Love never fails. Right? Love never fails. That's true in a godly marriage as well. You wouldn't believe that? By looking at the lack of commitment in our country, especially for men with the skyrocketing divorce rates, right? A lack of commitment. Wimpy men who, who walk away from difficult marriages, from difficult situations, instead of persevering and enduring and looking to God for the answers, walking away from their spouses. We are living in a culture that is not about commitment in marriage, beloved. And even Christian men, professing believers, Using, ter- using phrases like, I have fallen out of love with her. Or, she doesn't meet my needs anymore. Well, I wonder what, what if Christ's love for you was so wishy-washy like that? Right? Weak, unstable, wavering. Whenever things get hard, you're willing to walk away. Has Christ ever done that to you? Never. He loves you with a committed love, doesn't he? He's relentless. He's committed. He's devoted to us. It is a protective love. I'll add that. A protective love. 1 Timothy 3 talks about the qualifications for an elder. That an elder is to to stand well before his home. And the idea there is, is to take a protective posture before his household. You and I are protectors of our homes. As husbands, we are to protect our wives. Isn't that what Christ does for us? He is a protector, isn't he, of his church? In fact, one day, no matter what injustices you see in the world around us, especially toward our persecuted brethren in other countries, one day Jesus is returning to deliver the final death blow, isn't he? He protects his people. He will punish and judge those who have hurt his people. He is ever the protector. Well, what about for us as husbands? Many men leave their wives unprotected, vulnerable, susceptible to various dangers. Many men are okay leading their wives into sin in some way, shape, or form. 
I want to ask you, do you protect your wife's purity? Do you protect her purity? The things that she sees, the things that she puts in her head, the things that she reads. I want to ask you, do you protect her from harm and wrong doctrine or teaching? Are you a protective husband? Are you a man who is committed, you've committed yourself to making sure that your wife doesn't get overwhelmed in ministry? That you are constantly talking to her so that she is healthy spiritually, especially for those wives who are so driven to serve and to sacrifice in the church. How important it is for us to protect the time and the energy of our wives, brothers. Do we protect them from burning out? Do we point them to the right things, to holy, pure, sanctifying types of things? Do we encourage them to be a part of the church, a part of other women's lives? Sometimes protecting our spouses means that we take that time in private to lovingly and gently confront them when they're in sin, right? Do you protect your wife that way? Or are you gently, gently, humbly examining your own self, come to them and encourage them about the choices that they are making that could be harmful to them? Do you do that with your spouse? See, we are to be protecting our spouses, right? Our, our wives. So real men lead this way. Our leadership as husbands is not selfish, but it's loving leadership, brothers. Like Christ, according to Ephesians chapter 5, loving leadership. That is not selfish, that is Christ-like. And some of us are really blowing it in this area, really blowing it. Some of us are excuse makers. We are blame shifters. We follow in the footsteps of our forefather, Adam. The woman which you gave me made me eat this fruit. Right? We are blame shifters. Instead of taking ownership for our lack of leadership, we blame our wives. We blame our kids. We blame the church. We blame other people. We blame our upbringing. We blame our our past baggage or the hurts that others have inflicted upon us. We blame God for not giving us what that other guy has that makes him an effective leader as opposed to me. We blame everybody except owning up to our sin. Listen, it may very well be that there are things that explain why you struggle particularly in certain ways as the leader of your wife and of your home and in the church, I might add. But I can assure you that before God someday, you won't be able to blame anyone for your own sin. You won't. For not living out his God-given role to you as leader. In particular of your wife. Your problem is your sin. My problem is my sin. And and our abdicating of our leadership before God, brothers. And the solution is for you and I to repent. Repent. Repent of your lack of leadership. Humble yourself before God and repent of the fact that you've abdicated your leadership, whether that be in your marriage, in the home, or even not leading in the church to some capacity or another. You need to repent. The pathway to Christ exalting change is seeing your sin as God sees it. As disobedience before Him to His divine design for you. Confessing your sin before Him. Confessing your sin before your spouse, before your dear wife. Asking for God's forgiveness and for her forgiveness. 
And for the renewal from God and the grace to be able to move forward and lead in the way that God has called you to lead, brothers, in the power of the Spirit, by the grace of God, you can do it. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, right? If He's called you to lead your wife, He will give you the grace and empower you to do that. I understand the struggle. Some of us are weak. Perhaps we didn't grow up with examples in the home. Believe me, I understand. I understand. This does not excuse you from your God-given responsibilities. I am one of those who didn't grow up with a good, strong father figure. And I've scratched my head over the years wondering, Lord, why would you give me three sons to start with? Why? If I'm the Lord and I'm not the Lord, thank goodness, then it doesn't make sense. But God is gracious, isn't He? He's gracious. For my examples have come in the church, beginning with with, with Christ. Then men who have invested into me, and other men that I've gleaned from closely or from a distance, brothers. That is the beauty of the church of God. That is why discipleship is so important, brothers and sisters in Christ, that you are being invested into and vice versa. That we are in one another's lives. God provides for the lack of examples, perhaps in your upbringing, by His means of the gracious provision of His people. Think about it. Glorious, huh? But you and I must be go-getters. You need to ask for help. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Stop pouting. Stop licking your wounds. You will go to the grave doing so. Ask for help, beloved brother. Ask for help from a godly man who can model this for you and who can meet with you and help you lead. There is always hope, right, for the weak. There was always hope for the weak, Kempis Hernandez, that I would become the leader that God wanted me to be in the home and in the church. God is gracious. Some of us are faint-hearted. We've lost hope. We feel that we've made too many mistakes. We've blown it too much, right? It's too late. There's nothing that I can left for me to do. Listen to me. It is never too late. Never too late. You cannot change the past, but you can make new choices into the future, beginning with you taking ownership of your sin and confessing it to God and asking for His renewal that He would help you by His grace to be the man that He's called you to be. There's always hope in Christ. Always is. Some of the best Advice that I ever got from one of my mentors was this. Kempis, what is it that you want to do in the home or in the church? And I answered him. He says, then do it now. Do it now. Don't wait for later. Who you want to be in 5, 10, 20 years? Do it now, not later. Later may never come. Do it now. Lead in the home. Lead in the church by the grace of God. Best advice I ever got. Or some of the best advice I ever got. Some of us think we are doing really good. And we're really, really deceived. We may have submissive and supportive wives. And so this makes us look really, really good. Right? Externally. However, if you were to just ask your wife, you may be surprised at how you are blowing it. How you are blowing it. Recently had an epiphany after man camp in my own marriage about not being a good enough listener to my wife. I was convicted at man camp, came back, confessed it to my wife, 
And guess what? She agreed that, yes, I am not listening as well as I should. Amazing. It's like God is sovereign or something, right, in the human heart. Some of us would do well to ask because we have supportive wives who make us look really, really good. And they will never speak up, but we're not really as good as we think we are. Some of us are really good starters, but not very good long-distance runners in marriage. We've kind of, you know, think that because we've loved in the past, doesn't mean we should, we, 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 we should continue anymore, and we've ceased to love at the same, with the same fervency and, and passion and intensity. But the command is, husbands, keep loving your wives, right? Present tense. Keep loving them. This is to be the characteristic, what characterizes your life. Until the Lord takes you both home, or one or the other. In all of these cases, brothers, we must see our own sin, own it, and confess it. The pathway to change is repentance. Asking the Lord to forgive you. Asking your wife to forgive you. Asking the Lord for His grace to be different. Without a genuine, heartfelt repentance, there is going to be no long-lasting, Christ-exalting change. I can assure you of that. I've lived it. And once you have repented, then you need to take advantage of God's gracious provision here on this earth, the church. We need one another. None of us are an island. Understand, none of us are self-sufficient. We all need the church. We all need the people of God. This is true for the marriage as it is true for parenting, by the way. Nobody can parent or be a godly husband in their marriage or a godly wife without the church. You are not self-sufficient in your marriages, in your parenting. You need the people of God in your life, up on your grill. Amen? We need discipleship, brothers and sisters. This is why the instructions given in Colossians 3 about the Christian home are given, listen to me, within the larger framework of the church. Human marriage will one day pass away. The eternal marriage of Christ and His bride will go on forever and ever and ever. Don't make your families an idol. Your, phys- your biological families. Discipleship is crucial in the church. None of us are self-sufficient. None of us. By the way, this is why single people and young people, if you're in here, you must be cultivating these types of qualities in your life now. There's no magical switch that turns on when you say, I do, and now you start submitting to a husband, or you, a husband, start submitting to uh, loving your wife. There's no magic switch that turns on all of a sudden. These are heartfelt things that you must be cultivating in your heart now. Wives or future prospective wives cultivating a a heart of mutual submission in the church, seeking to affirm male leadership in the church, in your attitude, in your gentle and quiet spirit, in the way that you serve. It starts now, ladies. You prospective husbands are to be taking initiative and learning to consider the needs of others as more important than your own. How do you know when a boy becomes a man? How do you know when a young teenager becomes a man? When he stops thinking about himself and he starts being about the needs of others. That's how you know we are well on our way, right? It starts now. One day you will need to do this in a home with wife and children. And you will need to manifest selflessness in the church. How much more should you be practicing now? In preparation for that potential gift that God may have for you. The call for husbands to lead brothers is not optional. It's not a suggestion. 
It is our sobering responsibility as husbands, but it is to be done in love, right? It's loving leadership. And loving leadership is attractive. Listen to me. Attractive to a godly wife. Real men are loving leaders. You want to talk about making, having sexual intimacy with your spouse? It doesn't begin in the bedroom. It begins in all of life. You make love by leading your wife well. You make love to your wife by serving her well. You make love to your wife by self-sacrificing for her. By helping her around the house when things are overwhelming. It is a lifestyle of loving leadership, right? And this is attractive to a godly wife. Well, next week we're going to see the second characteristic of the husband's leadership in the home. All right? Let me pray for us and then we'll be dismissed. Our gracious Heavenly Father, you are an amazing, gracious God. We thank you for your clear scripture and the beautiful picture of your Son and his church. That as Christ has loved the church, so we ought to be loving our wives. Lord, give us the grace and empower us by your Spirit to be men who love our wives and men who might not be married but are cultivating that kind of heart of selflessness and humility in the context of the church that you may prepare us for that future day should you provide. Father, grant us the grace to be the men you've called us to be in the home and in the church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.